everyone, this is Bree, and you're listening to Super Smash Hosts. podcast where we smash the patriarchy one episode at a time. Today I'm so excited because I have Amina on the podcast with me and Amina is a former J-pop idol and activist. Amina do you want to just say hi and maybe introduce yourself a little bit? Hi my name is Amina Dijon. Um, I did idol stuff in Japan for a few years Um, and then I've also done some work with sex workers rights and activism in the UK and now with like a nonprofit in the US. Cool. So can we start um, kind of at the beginning for especially for people who don't know, but what is J-pop and what is an idol? I think, you know, maybe the Korean wave is changing that a little bit, but I think there's still a lot of people who don't know what idols are. So if you take the Korean model of idols, it's kind of a mix between Japanese idols and kind of American pop stars. So I guess some of the Korean K-pop stuff kind of has a space in J-pop idols, but basically it was a big thing in the 70s and 80s where you'd have girl groups or boy groups of young people who would perform, but they also had this very manufactured, crafted image around them. Um, This kind of changed in the 90s and in the 2000s as um, it was more modernized, so idols were no longer seen as like this almost godly figure. They were rather made into like the boy next girl door, girl next door sort of figure. And yeah, in Japan now, there's thousands of idol groups. Very few become famous, but the appeal to them aren't isn't necessarily their talent, but it's rather um, the way that the fans can connect to them on a personal level. And I think I read the statistic that Korean idols train for three years on average before they debut, whereas Japanese idols train for about three months before they debut. So talent isn't necessarily the biggest thing that fans like. They like to see growth and they like to see them as a person. So that's the biggest appeal to idols in Japan. Wow. So I know another thing, um, which is really interesting, is that you grew up in the U.S. in Michigan, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so Michigan, so what drew you to Japan and idol culture? Like, how did you get pulled into that world? I studied Japanese. I had private lessons since I was about 10, 11, yeah, 11, 12. Yeah, I had private lessons, and Michigan has a large Japanese population due to the auto industry, one of the largest in the country. Um, So I was able to learn Japanese quite quickly, and I had some friends at school Some were East Asian, some weren't, but they really liked K-pop, they liked Chinese pop, and they also liked J-pop. So they kind of introduced me to idols. And from there, I started streaming on a Japanese website when I was a teenager. Um, This is kind of before YouTube streaming was as popular, and I got scouted to uh, be signed to this talent agency in Japan. Wow, so what was that? like coming to Japan and joining an idol group like can you go a little bit into the detail about what that experience was like for you and I know also um you're the first black j-pop idol correct 
Um, well, people have said that, but there have been, like, other half-black Japanese idols in, in groups in Japan, but they weren't probably as popular, or maybe they, they didn't speak English, they only spoke Japanese, so Westerners might have not known about them, mm-hmm. but I guess in some sense, yes, because I did a lot of major contests in Japan, and I think it was a first in that sense. Right. Um, and so just kind of piggybacking off of that, what does, you know, I think anybody who knows a little bit about Japan, or if you listen to my podcast a lot, you've probably heard me say that Japan has a very, or likes to put up a very homogenous front. Um, the Japanese nation and the Japanese government perpetuates this idea that Japan is one race and one, you know, homogenous country, which isn't true. Um, we know this because we recently partook in the same panel together about racism and diversity in Japan. Yes. What was your experience like being um, a J-pop idol in Japan and being um, a person of color? Well, I don't necessarily think I experienced much racism, so to say. I know this is a question, you know, a lot of people ask me. Um, I think Black people are seen as being able to do, like, dancing and, like, R&B, which is the same in the U.S. We don't really see Black people as doing pop music or something. So that's not necessarily racist, but I guess it was kind of a stereotype I had to, I guess, fight against. Um, There was also instances of white girls or women, Western white women, who couldn't speak any Japanese. You know, in the West, they'd probably be mediocre at best. But in Japan, since um, they kind of have this worship of white people, as a lot of um, non-white people have, they were able to have a lot more opportunities or the similar opportunities as I had, even though I could speak Japanese and I'd be left to like translate for them. I found that to be a bit annoying at times, but I can't say I experienced anything just outwardly racist, maybe trolls online, but besides that, not really anything. So the opposite question then is if you didn't feel like you ever experienced outward racism, do you think you ever felt, um, and you know, your answer could again be no to this, but did you ever feel fetishized based on your race? Did you ever feel like you were a commodity then, um, as something that was unique? I mean, to some extent, because I wanted my personality to kind of show, and when I did auditions and stuff, I mean, people would make a note that I was American and that I was different, but they kind of, you know, they said, oh, I was cute and pretty, whatever, and it was really fun. Um, They could also, like, see, like, if I had a strong personality or try to make people laugh, but I think it kind of got overshadowed by the fact that, okay, yeah, I am different. It makes sense for people to pay attention to that, but, you know, it's not a bad thing to be different, but it can be kind of annoying if you're trying to be popular or doing something that's not always focused about that very interesting yeah because i i was interested in you know i in my head i thought there was this was either gonna go one of two ways blatant racism within the industry or fetishize fetishizing you in the industry and i think often we do see um a fetish in japan of especially white women as you said before eurocentric features are kind of held up by the um so yeah it's interesting to know what what you actually experienced and what you felt like and how your own opportunities might have been cast um, in a certain light based on your your skin color. So 
overall, your experience in Japan and your experience in the idol industry, um, you know, from what I know about Japanese culture, and I don't know that much about the idol culture, actually, to be honest, but um, there tends to be this hyper-sexualization of young girls in Japan. Do you think that was equally true of idols? Well, I mean, there is gravure and stuff of idols. Gravure is basically like bikini modeling. But a lot of idols nowadays are well over the age of 18. And I think it's fair for them to make that decision on whether they want to appear in gravure or not. Um, I do think there is sexualization of younger girls in Japanese media, and it's not treated maybe necessarily the same way that it would be seen um, in the West. Um, I think partially, partial of that is idol culture, but I don't think idol culture is um, explicitly sexual. I think a lot of fans, they like it for the parasocial relationship. Sometimes for some people that may be sexual, which is obviously problematic if it's a young girl, but I don't think that it's always like that, if that makes any sense. I think a lot of it is just based on this parasocial relationship. Um, a lot of the men maybe have some form of arrested development around women and what sort of women that they like. Again, this is not necessarily healthy, but I don't think it's 100% sexual all the time. Right. Very interesting. Um, and then, again, with idol culture and kind of that, who it appeals to, did you find that most of your demographic was younger high school, middle school girls, or was there also a lot of attraction from adult men in idol culture? So it's funny because when I was on TV in Japan a few times, the next day I'd go walking around, maybe one man would say, like, oh, I saw you on TV but like 95, 99% of the people who recognized me were like high school girls with their families out or old ladies. Um, so I thought that that was quite interesting. Maybe if a man saw me, they were just too embarrassed to say anything. Um, but at the shows that I did, you know, it was mostly older men who tend to be the ones who are fans of idols. Um, however, I did have a fair amount of younger women who supported me as well or women in general. Right, that's so interesting. And then, I mean, you, you know, you were in um, the idol space for a few years, and then you stopped being an idol. So what, why, um, how did that career progression happen? And what really inspired you to take a step back? Um, is there anything you miss about the community? Is there anything you wish would change? Well, I was performing solo for a few years at like underground events. And then I kind of had a bit of a break with um, this contest that I did that was hosted by the publisher Kodansha. I won like, I didn't win the first prize, but I won like a runner up award out of like 5,000 participants. So this is kind of a big thing. And I was in a photo book and I did all this stuff and that got me a lot more attention. I did grab your DVD and then I joined a group with which was in a major um, talent agency so that all progressed quite quickly um the group was a bit short-lived but while i was in it we had every day there was something to do whether it was like a singing lesson dancing lesson workout session sometimes we'd perform like two or three gigs in one day i was in university full-time and i was working so i found it to be quite exhausting and it wasn't sustainable for 
long term. Um, I was falling behind in university. So I basically took a step back and quit because I think I had gotten everything that had went in to get out of it. And I, I just needed to focus more on um, graduating from college. So that was my big reason for taking a step back. Wow, I didn't realize that you were studying at the same time that you were you were an idol. Like that's absolutely insane. I don't know how you managed. I don't know either. Yeah, I know you said you know J-pop isn't the same as K-pop in terms of the intensity for the idol training, but still, I mean, I can imagine it's a lot. Um, so then you know you've made this transition now from kind of this J-pop idol to more of an activist. So what drew you to activism? How did you enter the activist space, and what? specific issues are you really interested in? Well, when I was living in the UK, I did a lot of organizing around um, sex workers' rights and unionization, and we lobbied to the Labour Party. My focus was on migration, so migrants who were in the UK, which is a big deal right now. So yeah, and it kind of has to do with my degree. So I was studying social sciences, and that's what my degree is in. So when you talk about, you know, sex workers' rights and migration, can you expand on that a bit more? How are these two, I think, um, for me and you who have social studies backgrounds, we can kind of connect them. But for the general audience, how is sex work and migration linked? I mean, any labor exploitation can be linked to people who are living precariously, right? So we know that migrants, um, not all the time, but a lot of people migrating from the global south into richer countries, Um, Usually they have a precarious living situation, Um, they might be undocumented, it might be hard for them to give birth, so exploitation is just bound to come from that situation. Um, You have a vulnerable person who can have their labor exploited. So we find that there is, I mean, some correlation with migrants and sex work, but there's also other forms of labor abuses that tie into um, migration. So these things, they don't always go hand in hand, but they tend to go hand in hand. And the problem is usually when we talk about it, especially in the UK, also in the US as well, is that we tend to talk about migrants, um, particularly women from Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe, as if they don't have any autonomy about their lives and about their situations. And I think with doing the organizing in the UK, we kind of take the standpoint that look, we realize that they might not be making this choice out of one that is empowered, but we say, you know, what does empowerment have to do with it? Um, We should be able to protect them from labor abuses, but also at the same time, realize that they have autonomy because, yeah, a lot of the discussion with the anti-trafficking movement, um, again, in the US and and UK, they kind of infantilize And I mean, it's really an Orientalist standpoint that they take. They infantilize women who are from, again, Southeast Asia, other parts of the world. And they talk about them as if they're breathing human beings who can make a decision for themselves. So yeah, we kind of take this, or I, when I worked with um, organizations in the UK, and then now the standpoint that, you know, we want to empower people by letting them make decisions for themselves and giving them the resources to make the best decision for themselves. Right. So let me see if I'm if I'm understanding correctly. Um, and the idea being that, you know, sex, sex trafficking and sex work often get 
the narrative, the dominant narrative has become that these are exploitative activities and that um, in trying to manage and control sex trafficking, what we have done to sex workers um, is we've reduced them of any agency in deciding that, um, whether or not what they're doing with their body is their choice. And then we are, again, imparting this kind of Orientalist vision of what's right or wrong on them. Have I have I understood that correctly? Yes, yes. And I think that's a fair analysis. And I agree. I would also say that, you know, I hear people say this quite a lot, that sex work isn't the same as sex trafficking. However, um, I get why people do this, but I kind of take the standpoint that this binary of choice versus force, you understand what I'm saying? I don't think that most people exist within this binary. So you can make a choice to do something, but if it's because you're starving, is that really a choice? So I kind of take this perspective of um, seeing it as a nuanced issue, again, because the way that trafficking is kind of, um, this conversation is devolved in our um, dialogue, you know, has been, it's either this feminist, she's like this empowered lady, usually like some white lady or in New York or whatever, she's making this choice to do this and she's so rich and yeah, screw men, you know, they kind of have that point. But on the other point, they take uh, this notion that, oh, this trafficked, shivering victim, she's on drugs and she has no choice and she's kidnapped from Cambodia and you know, and these two realities, they do exist, but they, I think they're quite extremes. I I think um, myself and other people who do advocacy around this, we kind of take the standpoint of being more of a nuanced, um, in the middle sort of point of view, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I know I've seen, and I can't I can't for the life of me remember what organization it was, but um, a UK-based sex trafficking organization, and a lot of their uh, promotional material it seemed to show, you know, uh, women with hands covering their mouth or just their legs or very like objectified, compartmentalized photos of women's bodies and very horrific and juxtaposing imagery with, you know, some type of indicate, like some type of font that indicates that they had been trafficked, they had no choice or agency in this. Um, and it always struck me as really interesting that these posters represented these women as just pieces of, of meat like objects that had absolutely no um agency in what was going on in their life as you said obviously agency you know no choices made in free will there's always some type of um kind of pressure that is shaping how a person what the person chooses to do but i, I found these campaigns quite interesting so you know how how exactly, one thing that I'm quite confused about, but I'm interested in is how exactly do people who are sex work positive also campaign at the same time um, to be anti-sex trafficking in ways that don't conflate the two or or also create more of this reproduction of these women as agentless? Well, I would... I think it was a good observation you made on behalf of those um, organizations that use imagery like that because again it is objectifying and it's basically doing what they say that they're against to do but I think what people can realize is that there's a lot of myths um, and a lot of mass hysteria that's come around um, regarding trafficking in the west Um, I think a lot of it's 
fueled by propaganda, you know, based on TV, you know, films like Taken. I don't know if you've seen that by Liam Nielsen, but um, I think if we realize and encourage people to realize that these organizations are pushing for laws that would actually make women more are more in danger. Um, an example of this would be the Nordic model, which they have in Sweden and they have in a lot of countries in Europe now, I think they have it in Canada, which basically penalizes the buyer or the man usually in the situation. And they say that they do things to help those being exploited or, you know, women in trouble. However, we've seen that violence has actually skyrocketed with implementation of this law. And the reason why this law is spreading so much is because I think people who are, they see themselves as allies or they see themselves as good doers or whatever, they th think that, oh, let's punish, you know, the abuser, which they perceive as the man in the situation. Let's, let's punish him and save the women. So it sounds good on like a moralistic front, but in real life, it's actually just being used to deport migrant women all throughout Europe. The reason why they actually made this law in Sweden was basically to get rid of Nigerian and Eastern European women who were working there. They saw them as a blight. They basically deport them back to the countries that they came from. They take their money away, but they say that they're helping them from exploitation. I've seen cases also um, with um, the US. So the Bush administration was incredibly bad about this. They made a lot of policies regarding trafficking and migration, which again, people think, oh, this is good, this is gonna help women, but it actually impacted women in Asia the most. I think it was maybe Thailand or Cambodia. And these women had been supposedly rescued from sex work and working in these countries by US initiatives, of course. And they were basically encouraged to work in sweatshops for Nike, like I think it might've been Nike, just major companies. And a lot of the women said, I'd rather go back to doing what I was doing before, you see? But I think people need to understand that there is an agenda behind this. Um, it's not truly to help women. It's basically just to be able to control migration. If you can say that women from Asia, if you can say that women from wherever are being trafficked into the US, you can keep them as your house cleaner and underpay them. You can keep them in these precarious situations. You see, so I don't think people understand that this, I would say propaganda within the US is basically just being used to um, control migration, really. Um, when they have these arrests and stuff, these women are often have their money taken from them. Basically, yeah, the, a lot of these laws and rhetoric are just used to control women. So I have a question and, you know, we've kind of touched on it in and out a little bit in this conversation, but I think just for listeners and even for myself, I think um, going back a little bit and, and talking about what is the difference between criminalizing sex work, decriminalizing sex work and legalizing sex work and how do these different definitions that all sound like synonyms, you know, in a way. Yeah, yeah, they sound very much alike. Yeah, to, to the average person. If I said, you know, decriminalize sex work or legalize sex work, I think your brain would think that these two things mean the same thing, but they don't, and they have very different implications. Um, can you talk a bit more about what these implications are and why, you know, I know you talked a little bit about the Nordic model, um, but maybe just dissecting it a little bit further. 
So full criminalization is what the U.S. has. Um, places like China has this. Um, a few other countries. It's not very common, actually. Um, but full criminalization basically means that it's completely illegal. The person selling sex, the person buying sex, and then third parties will all be penalized um, and criminalized under this. Legalization, there's some form of criminalization involved, so certain things might be criminalized. So take a place like in Vegas, not in Vegas, in Nevada, where there are some rural counties where they have brothels and it's legalized. It's criminalized for women to work on their own or just different elements of it is incredibly penalized or restricted. That's legalization. They also have legalization in Germany. They have it in Holland where Amsterdam is. Um, it basically means that it's fine to do, but the state basically has all these sanctions. You might need a license to do it. There was probably mandatory testing. Um, certain foreigners probably can't do it. They probably have like an age restriction. You might have to take some classes. You have to register with the government to tell them. So that's essentially what legalization is. I think the UK, yeah, there's also legalization in the UK. However, third parties are criminalized. So there's always some form of criminalization. Japan is um, the same, except intercourse, but vaginal intercourse is criminalized. It's quite strange, but everything else is legalized. So I remember coming across Soapland and wondering, what is this place where you can pay to get bathed and have oral sex, but not penetrative sex? Yeah, it's very strange. Um, they did that because the U.S. essentially made them do that, you know, after World War II. But then they put in this like little asterisk, like, except for so they have a funny loophole about that. Um, somewhere like, so then the next I would say is decriminalization. This has kind of been hijacked in the US by anti-trafficking organizations. Essentially, full decriminalization means that there's no legal penalties behind it, except, okay, so if something is decriminalized, you know, abusing a child is still gonna be against the law. So it obviously wouldn't decriminalize something like that or labor exploitation isn't going to be against the law. So it wouldn't decriminalize that. It would rather treat it like it's a labor issue rather than it being a criminal issue. So that's basically what full decriminalization is. There's also the Nordic model, which is partial decriminalization, or it's been hijacked to be partial decriminalization. That's in Sweden, France. Um, they're trying to get it in Germany, uh, Northern Ireland. Um, Ireland, they're trying to pass it in Scotland now, I think. And that basically means that the buyer is criminalized and third parties are criminalized, which supposedly is supposed to be safer for the women involved. But as we see, if one element of how you work is criminalized, then the rest of it becomes criminalized. So yeah, those are the different models. We find that full decriminal decriminalization in, in like places like New Zealand. Um, and I think one state in, is it New South Wales in Australia, where they have full decriminalization, um, it tends to be a lot safer working conditions for the women involved, or not the women, the workers involved, um, because some men are sex workers. And yeah, legalization like they have in Nevada and other parts of the world.
um, I think Bangladesh has legalization, a few other places. It's not the best thing in the world just because, I mean, it sounds good on the, you know, it sounds good on the surface level, but it's not good because they still strip autonomy from people. If somebody is so precarious that they're working on the streets and they're selling sex on the streets, they're not going to have enough money to get a license um, from the state. Not to mention that it's incredibly patronizing to force women to have to get a license from the state to be able to do this. So we find that um, I think most people who are involved in advocacy advocate for full decrim, but some people are pro legalization. So this is a really, that was, first of all, amazingly explained, like those three, you broke them down in such easy to understand ways. So thank you. Um, so another thing you brought up, actually, was just kind of a quick interlude there. You said that, oh, you know, even men can be sex workers. Um, brought to my mind the question of intersectionality. So we see, or I have seen at least, um, you know, especially on my social media, a incredible growth in sex work um, and sex work being legitimized as real work and sex positive content um, all over social media. But that is largely this sex work as real work movement, I've noticed at least, has largely been led by white women um, in, you know, Eurocentric countries like the UK or the US. And this obviously doesn't speak to what, you know, who actually is a sex worker. Um, and what happens, I don't know if you can speak to this, I don't know how much you know about it, but what happens when it is white women who speak for sex workers' rights? Um, and what are the impacts that this has on the actual, you know, decriminalization, legalization, et cetera, et cetera, models? I mean, this is a fair criticism. Um, there are some groups that aren't necessarily in the Anglosphere. I think they're called Empower in Thailand. They're made up of all Thai workers. There's Sweat in South Africa, which advocate for decriminalization. It's almost all black South African workers. So there are different groups around the world that might not necessarily be on a lot of people's radar, of course, um, which is understandable. And I do think there is um, a problem of people who have the most resources and the most wealth saying, yeah, this is great. This is totally fun. I'm empowered by this. We hear that narrative a lot, um, especially within the U.S. I think it's fine for people to be empowered by that work. You know, that's their decision. However, I think the conversation shouldn't be so centered around empowerment, but rather from like a labor exploitation point of view, um, which we see this cropping up more and more now, but yeah, I do think there is kind of maybe a gap. I think in the U.S., though, it is better represented by Asian, Black, and um, other sex workers doing advocacy or people like allies doing advocacy, so yeah. So what is the, and on that point about allies, what is the best way to be an ally um, for sex workers and sex workers' rights? I mean, listen to people. So I see people, they will share these videos, like, of them at Whole Foods or something. And they'll say, oh, this guy was going to traffic, human traffic me at Whole Foods. Which, okay, I'm not denying people get kidnapped, people get hurt. That's a very real thing. But I think by sharing stuff like this, 
which is essentially like a black man looked at me scary or something, you know, usually that's what it really is. By sharing this sort of stuff, they're basically just propagating this mass hysteria that sex trafficking is everywhere, which is, a, it's a, it's, um, it's a disadvantage because there are people who are actually being exploited and abused, you know, um, that we overlook because it doesn't look like this imaginary law and order SVU type of um, trafficking that people have in their minds. So I would ask people to read and educate themselves on the issue and um, try to understand it from a nuanced point of view. Um, I would also say listen to people who are involved in this sort of thing, um, particularly. So I think something that was interesting was the Robert Kraft case. I don't know if you remember that he was like an NFL guy. I don't know anything about sports. He was like, he was like an executive or something, some rich guy from football, um, older guy. He went to like a massage parlor in Florida and he was arrested in a bust. And I mean, people kind of made it like, oh, this old white man, human trafficking, blah, 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 which, okay. But I wish they would have looked into the case and they would have seen that the women who were there were essentially arrested, as I said, they had all of their uh, money taken away, they had their pictures put in the papers, and they were deported back to um, the countries in Asia that they came from. And if it's truly human trafficking, you truly believe that there's a victim involved, then why do we rob them and deport them back to another country? Um, so I'd advise when stuff like that comes up for people to actually kind of look at the cases. Um, I've seen people share things like on my Facebook and stuff, and it'll say, oh, human trafficking bus, 50 people arrested. But then you look at it and it's like, oh, these are all single moms who were arrested for prostitution. Where's the trafficking in this? So I would advise people to kind of read up on this issue and also advocate for things like, you know, foster care. You know, a lot of people who are exploited in this, in the sex industry, a lot of them come from foster care, come from poor communities where, they may get into an abusive relationship or they genuinely don't feel like they have another way to earn a livable wage. So I would say advocate against poverty um, with youth rather than. That's a really interesting point. And, you know, it brings me to this other idea of who, who should we be listening to? Um, and if you had any particular examples of really good resources, um, and really bad resources, too, because I think sometimes it's worthy to point out, hey, like these are, you know, pointed to a lot in the mainstream media, but I actually don't think this is a valuable resource. I had a question for you. Um, there was a celebrity, I want to say Ashton Kutcher. I might be wrong. Um, I don't know if you know anything about this case, but he was quite involved for a while in advocating for sex trafficking. And I remember there were hums and haws about whether or not, you know, his opinions and his voices in this were actually reflective of what was what was happening. But he garnered a lot of mainstream attention um, simply because of his platform as an actor. Ashton Kutcher, um, to my knowledge, he basically paid for and um, was behind this kind of technology to use facial recognition software supposedly to find trafficking victims, which, I mean, maybe they might have saved one or two people, I'm not sure. 
But um, basically, it's quite a dangerous precedent for the to have this technology to be used to um, to go after you know marginalized groups of people. So I think people kind of found that quite worrying. Um, and on the surface level, again, it sounds like he's doing something very good. But I would look at like Swap USA, which is like an organization in the U.S. Swarm in the U.K. Um, there are a few other they others. They usually have really good takes on if this thing is actually good for people. Is it going to make people more at risk for being exploited and things like that? I don't know. I think just like trying to be aware of everything, like. You know, it's a really serious issue that it kind of seems like it's a nonpartisan issue. So I understand why a lot of people gravitate towards the conversation of sex trafficking. But I would just like urge people to kind of read between like just beyond the headlines and actually read what's going on, because a lot of it is quite bad for the people involved. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about it being a nonpartisan issue, because I think on the surface level, you know, Every article headline talks about trying to save sex workers. All of these seem, but all of these articles seem very benevolent. All the action is framed in benevolent terms. We're trying to help. We're doing something good. We're saving people from exploitation. It's always framed in that way. Nobody's framing it as being something negative for these workers, right? So I think it requires a little bit more critical analysis and thinking. Also, um, I think also, sorry to cut you off, but I would say also like recognizing that you don't have to support the sex industry to support sex workers, which I think people kind of can't understand. I don't support it. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily right. Um, I think some people might, you know, enjoy it. That's fine for them, but I don't necessarily think that it's overall good for society. I don't know if it's good for women or I shouldn't say women, but just anybody involved in it. Um, however, I realized that by simply like throwing the baby out with the bathwater is not very good to do. Right. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point is, you know, your each individual person standing on what they feel about the adult and um, the sex worker industry is not necessarily um, going to reflect the reality of what's going to occur. You know, we can say that we don't want sex work to occur, but it will always occur. And it's like, how safe can we make that for the people involved? Um, I think that's the crux of the argument, right? It boils down to, at the end of the day, um, a very similar, you know, parallels to abortion. You can try to restrict it as much as you want. It will never go away. It's about how safe can you make this for the people who are going to do it. It was really interesting to chat to you. I don't know if you have any other little points you want to add. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time up, um, but it was really great chatting to you. Thank you. Likewise, I would say donate to Bay Area, Bay Area's worker support. Um, donate to Swarm there in the UK. You can donate to Swap USA, um, Decrim New York. There's a few, there's so many groups you can donate to because a lot of people, you know, the people who are the most vulnerable are the people who are being the most impacted by COVID. So I would encourage if you have any spare money to donate to them. A lot of them are doing mutual aid funds for people who really need help. Uh, so, yeah. Hey, everyone. So, so sorry. Um, we had a bit of an internet issue when we were conducting this interview with Amina. So it just kind of cut out right near the end. But thankfully, we got all the kind of meat and bones of the interview done. 
But um, I really wanted to pick Amina's brain a little bit more about how COVID is impacting sex workers. So maybe that can be a future episode. Um, she brought it up right near the tail end of that interview and everything in me was itching to ask her more. But I wanted to get this out for you guys. Um, and I'm sorry we didn't have like a proper wrap up, but I'll add all of Amina's social accounts linked in the show notes. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe and rate us and follow us on social media at Super Smash Hose Media. Thank you guys so much. 